Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth discussion of the films that I love. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. I continue to celebrate the 100th anniversary of Ingmar Bergman's birth with a discussion of his 1978 film, Autumn Sonata. And Autumn Sonata is a devastating film. It's a powerful film. It's one that stayed with me ever since I saw it a few years ago. It's the only film that Ingmar ever did with Ingrid Bergman, such an icon who I really love. And she gives a powerhouse performance in this film as a mother who has a really complicated, painful relationship with her daughter. And this film will just devastate you in every possible way. But some of the themes that I touch on are the way that we are damaged by people, especially when we are young and in our childhood, about how painful it can be when people are not able to love us the way that we need to be loved. And obviously, this is just a powerful look at a mother-daughter relationship, but it's also complex and nuanced, much more than I realized the first time that I watched it a few years ago. So this was a film that I wanted to revisit. I think it is um, a great film by Bergman that maybe doesn't get talked about quite as much as some of his other films. But I dig really deeply into it and talk about why I think it matters and why I think it has some really important things to say to us. So I hope that you'll stick around and that you'll listen to the full episode. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the podcast on a monthly basis and you can access rewards and extras like um, extra episodes and getting to participate in polls and things like that. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herheadandfilms. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash herheadandfilms. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode. So I'd like to give a shout out to my wonderful patrons, David, Juan, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Spunden, Paulina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, Michelle and Lindsay, thank you all so much for being patrons. You make the podcast possible, and I'm just so grateful for all of you. And I'm grateful to everyone who listens to this podcast. If financial support is not an option for you, and I definitely understand if it isn't, please consider leaving a review of the podcast on iTunes and or Stitcher. If you write a review on iTunes, I will read it in a future episode of Her Head and Films. You can also tell your friends and followers about the podcast, or you can send me an encouraging message or interact with me in a positive way on social media. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Her Head and Films, and you can see all my social media accounts listed in the show notes of each episode.
Before I talk about Autumn Sonata, I just want to talk a few moments in a more general way and in a more personal way. And longtime listeners know that I do this sometimes. I haven't done it as much lately, where I just sort of muse for a little bit about things going on in my life or something that I've been thinking about. But I want to take a moment to say this because it's it's been something that I've wanted to say for a while and it's both connected to the podcast and kind of not but it'll all come together for you but just let me speak for a moment Donald Hall recently died he's a really wonderful American poet and I love his poetry I've, I've sort of been revisiting it and I recently read a book that he wrote um, called Without and it's poems that are about the death of his wife, who died um, several or many years ago. And um, his death has brought up a memory for me. I'm a literary person. Some of you may not know that. I've talked about it in past episodes. It's sort of ironic and strange that I have a film podcast, because for much of my life, I've been really in love with literature. And when I went to college in 2010, I majored in literature. And I consider myself a writer. It's not until around 2011 that I got really into art house cinema and started to think of myself as a cinephile. And that would be when I was around 21 or 22 years old, when I got really into art house cinema and became sort of, I guess, a film buff or or something like that. I sort of call it like cinemania or cinemadness. Personally, I just have words for it. Um, how obsessed I've become with films, but this is not a part of myself that I necessarily have always been connected to. I've always been a much more literary person interested in language and writing and books, and I don't think one is better than the other. I think that they are both essential art forms for me personally, that cinema and literature have helped me through life and they've helped me survive. But when I look back on my life, I realize that even when I was very young, films were a big part of my life. I always thought of myself as literary. I always sort of defined myself that way. But even from a young age, I was watching Turner Classic Movies. And I took a really important film appreciation class when I was in high school and when I was in my early teens. And that really opened my eyes to the art form of cinema. But there are these two parts of me. You know, one is visual um, and is with cinema, and one is with language and with literature. And those are the parts of me that really are the most important, you know. And some of you may relate to this. Some of you who are listening may consider yourselves more literary, you know, or something like that. I don't think I have to choose, but sometimes for me... I do get torn, you know, because you only have so much time in the day. So am I going to read a book or am I going to watch a film? And sometimes I do feel torn and I do feel, um, you know, where do I put my time? And sometimes I'm in a more bookish mood. I've actually been going through that recently where I've been reading more, especially poetry. And then sometimes I'm in a more film mood, which tends to be most of the time these days. Um, But I've been kind of taking a break from films except to do this podcast episode this week. But what I wanted to say is that Donald Hall's death brought up a memory for me. 
and it was from 2008. And a lot of you may not know my backstory, but um, I grew up working class, poor at times. Um, and my father died in 2006. And around that time, I was 16 years old. And it was devastating for me. It shattered me. I struggled with mental illness, depression, and anxiety. I got agoraphobic um, after his death. And I still struggle with agoraphobia. I'm still someone who has a hard time being out in the world. I still struggle with mental illness. Um, I feel a lot of shame about it, that I struggle with it. So when I was 16 and my father died, I didn't have some kind of plan for my life. You know, a lot of people when they um, graduate high school, they directly go into college. And that wasn't really my path. My mom and I were really devastated by my dad's passing. And I was an only child. And I did really well in school. I was an A student. I was in... um, the, I was in different honor societies, and I took AP, AP classes. It wasn't necessarily that I didn't have the grades or the intelligence to go to college, but I didn't have the money, you know, and I was worried about different things connected to it. Um, but more than that, I was worried about leaving my mom because she didn't have anybody. Because our family, and I've talked about this in other episodes, was not very kind and supportive to us, either my dad's side or my mom's side. So it was really just me and her. And we created this little world together. Um, and we're still extremely close, and I still live with her and stuff. And um, so when I graduated high school in 2007, um, I didn't go straight into college. I actually... Um, the I I was just still struggling with a lot. I was struggling with my dad's death and we did not have a lot of money. I didn't have health insurance. I didn't have access to any kind of grief counseling, anything. I I didn't have access to that kind of stuff. I still don't, you know, I, I can't go to a therapist about my depression and, you know, I just don't have access to those things. And I didn't then either when I was 16, 17 years old. So she worked at a factory at the time. And so when I left high school, I actually went to go work at that factory. And it was a really brutal experience. I don't know if some of you have worked in factories. Um, There were no windows in this place. It was the first time in my life where I felt like a number. You know, I felt so dehumanized within that space And, you know, I'm someone who's very class conscious because I grew up working class and poor at times. And I've been on food stamps. I've gone without food at times. I've been almost homeless. I've had very intense experiences of class and and living under capitalism and and what it can do to you. And um, working at this factory, it was a brutal experience. It really affected my health physically because it was, at times, it could be a physical job and my body didn't handle it well. And I've sort of been scarred by it. Like, I still, my health has never been the same since working at that factory. And, um, And this was 10 years ago 
because it's 2018 right now. I've just never, I've never been the same health-wise since I worked there. Um, But I'm just trying to make you realize what a difficult environment it was. That it was very dehumanizing and just, I didn't like it. I, I did not like it at all. And it was a really difficult experience. And I honestly try not to think about it very often. I, the job didn't last that long, but it basically ruined me, you know, and, and it took a big toll on, on my health and on my life. But um, the thing about it is that I remember when I was working there, I remember um, I would listen to the radio a lot. I would listen to NPR because I was able to do that because of the work I was doing. It was actually a sewing factory. So I was sitting and sewing and doing stuff like that. And it was very difficult work. So I had my headphones in and I remember one day in 2008 listening to the Diane Rehm show, which was on NPR at the time. I think she's retired. And there was this interview with Billy Collins and Donald Hall. And it was this really beautiful interview. And I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes of this episode so that you can maybe listen to it for yourself. But this interview happened a decade ago. And I still think about it. And I'm still haunted by it. Because I just remember being in this infernal place this factory that is just so dehumanizing and not a place that as a teenager you necessarily want to be in your life just a few years after your father's died and you're struggling with mental illness and you're struggling with isolation and grief and you have nobody and you're completely alone in the world it was a really dark place for me and it was a dark time in my life those those few years after my father died and they've really damaged me and and I I don't know I still think about them and I feel very haunted by those years of my life when I just felt so um I felt so undone I felt like I was coming undone that I was unraveling and I had nobody and I had no help and I was so um destroyed by losing him and what it did to my life you know um and within those years I lost other people I lost my um my grandmother my uncle all by the time I was 20 years old so this time in my life was so compressed and so traumatic that it still has um consequences for me It's been 12 years, but it's still there for me. I live with the aftermath of it. What it did to my mind, my body, my soul, my spirit. The way it shattered me. All of that loss and that grief and being poor. And and I made minimum wage at that factory. I barely made enough for us to live on. But I was trying to help my mom. And I was eventually able to go to college. And that happened in 2010. So that happened several years down the road. Um, But this time in my life is so intense. But I just remember that interview. And I remember what it meant to me to hear their voices. And to hear this. And it was like. 
it was like something reaching me. It was like this hand reaching out to me, I guess you could say. And it was a, a source of comfort for me to hear this interview, to hear Donald Hall and to hear Billy Collins. And I think it was one of the first times when I realized the power of radio, the power of a human voice telling a story and talking. And I never thought that all these years later, I would have a podcast. But that's what's really great about podcasting, is that when I was young and growing up, the only way that you could be on the radio was to be official, you know, to be an NPR person, right? Um, You had to have some kind of connections or some way to get on the radio. And now with my podcast, it's like, I get to have a little bit of that. Like, I get to um, have a voice, And I like to think that maybe for somebody out there, my voice or my podcast could be what that Donald Hall and Billy Collins interview was. And that's why I do this. And I've been thinking about the last few years of my life and they've been difficult. You know, I lost my house in 2015. I've moved a lot. I've had a lot of instability. I've had a lot of struggle the last few years. I'm just going to be honest about it. I feel like ever since my dad died, every day is a struggle. I'm just trying to survive and I get so tired of just surviving. But I think a little light in the dark has been this podcast. And I really feel like I'm creating something or building something that could be meaningful for other people. And I hope that it is. I hope that I hope that my voice reaches you wherever wherever you are in your life. You may not be um, you know, in the depths that I was ten years ago at a factory. Um You may not be at the worst point in your life. And I hope that you're not. I don't want that for anybody. But wherever you are in your life, I hope that my voice is something meaningful for you. And I hope that it makes you feel a little less alone. I hope it makes you feel seen or heard or affirmed in some way. I really do care about those of you who listen. I care about those of you who care about me and care about my voice and care about what I have to say. So please, you know, if you're on social media, I love hearing messages from y'all. I love getting comments. I, I love that. I really do. Because that is what I'm doing. You know, in my own loneliness and in my own pain, I'm trying to reach out and connect to you. I'm trying to be like that Billy Collins and Donald Hall interview in a way. Um, And I'm trying to make a connection with you across vast distances. (laughs) And um, I'm sure our experiences are very different as, as all of us are. You know, we're all living different lives. But I hope that wherever you are, whatever's going on in your life, I hope that this podcast is... A source of comfort for you and I hope that um, I just really hope that because that's what other people's voices have been for me that's what that interview was in that factory 
And it's what radio and other podcasts continue to be for me. And that's why the podcast, Her Head in Films, is so personal. Is because anybody can talk about these films. Anybody can give you, you know, the rundown about these films. I'm trying to give you myself. I'm trying to give you my heart. I'm trying to give you my story. I'm trying to to explain what a film means for me in my life and why it moves me or why I think it's important. Um, and I do hope that there's something comforting about that for you or just that you connect to it in some way, you know, or that I give you something to think about or I give you a different perspective than maybe what your life is. Um, that's all. That's all I'm really trying to do with this, so... I wanted to talk about that for a little while because it's just something I've been thinking about and I've been thinking about just how much her head in films means to me that throughout all of the chaos and the instability and the pain over the last few years this is a bright light for me and it's something that I am creating with my own voice my own hands and it's something that I'm building and that I can point at and say look what I've done you know, this is what I'm creating. I'm trying to make movies personal. I'm trying to make cinema deeply, deeply emotional. I'm trying to to communicate that the deep emotional undercurrents of cinema, and the way that they and the way that films impact our lives. And so, I hope that you find something meaningful and valuable in that. I'm gonna stop here because I cry every episode. <laughs> I, I hope that I can do an episode one day where I do not cry. But now I'm going to talk about Autumn Sonata. Um, but I just wanted to talk about that for a few moments. Before I get uh, into my deep analysis of Autumn Sonata, I just want to give you some background information about the film, about how it was made, and sort of the inspiration that Ingmar Bergman had to make the film. This is one of his later films. It's from 1978, um, and it's really notable for it being the first collaboration, or really the only collaboration, between Ingmar Bergman and Ingrid Bergman, and they have such similar names, and you know, they were both Swedish, and um for me, I think this is a really powerhouse performance by Ingrid Bergman. I could have chosen so many Ingmar Bergman films to talk about. He was prolific. We all know that. Those of you who are listening, you know how prolific he was. You know how many classics he created from Persona. I mean, I would say Persona is the defining film for him. But I also like The Seventh Seal. I like his trilogy of Through a Glass Darkly, Winter Light, and The Silence. I've talked about Wild Strawberries already and Summer Interlude. Um... There's so many great Ingmar Bergman films. There's Fanny and Alexander, which I had the pleasure of watching last year in 2017. And it's been such a pleasure to talk about Bergman. This film is going to round out my examination of of his films for 2018 on the 100th anniversary of his birth. Um, I chose Summer Interlude, Wild Strawberries, and now Autumn Sonata. For me, 
Um, it was very difficult to choose these films because there's so many that I could have chosen. I love Cries and Whispers. And there's so many Bergman films that I haven't even seen yet. I haven't even scratched the surface of his work. Um, but Autumn Sonata for me was so devastating. I saw it several years ago. It was so devastating and so memorable in the way it explored a mother-daughter relationship that I just felt drawn to this. And I really wanted to talk about his films about women. Not every film I've talked about was about women. Wild Strawberries Without was about an, old, an older man. But um, Autumn Sonata is about women. And it's about this mother-daughter relationship that is not one that I can personally relate to. I'll be honest about that. Because I have a really close relationship with my mother. We're extremely close and we have a very loving, affectionate, beautiful relationship. She's my soulmate. She's the love of my life. Um, I, She's just everything to me. I can't overstate that. She's just my life and um, I love her deeply. And so Autumn Sonata, I can't necessarily relate to it personally but it just made such a visceral impact on me that I had to talk about it. And um, so I want to dig in a little bit into some of the filming and the idea for the film. And all of this information is my my central source is Ingmar Bergman's book Images, My Life in Film. I can't really recommend it enough to you. I mean, this is a book in which he goes film by film talking about in the inspiration for different movies, talks about the experience on set. The Magic Lantern does this a little bit, um, but I would say his autobiography, The Magic Lantern, is more about his childhood, and he talks a lot about his time in the theater. That is like a huge part of the book as well. But images, if you want to know more about his films, I would go with images. If you want to know more about his personal life, then The Magic Lantern would be the one to go with. Um, Bergman in Images tells us the Autumn Sonata was written in 1976. And it was written during a big time of turmoil for him. He was embroiled in a tax evasion scandal. And he ended up in a psychiatric hospital. I guess he had a breakdown because of it. And um, so around this time, he wrote it. And eventually, that tax evasion charge was reduced, he says, quote, from that of a serious crime to one of simple tax understatement, unquote. So Autumn Sonata is really born from a tumultuous time in his life. And that seems to be a bit of a pattern with some of these films. <laughs> that they come from difficult times in his life. And he did have a complicated personal life. He says, quote, Autumn Sonata was conceived in one night in a matter of hours after a period of total writer's block. The lingering question is, why this? Why Autumn Sonata? It contained nothing that I had been thinking about before. Unquote. So he himself feels like the origins of this story are mysterious. He doesn't know quite where it came from inside of him. He had been wanting to work with Ingrid Bergman. She and him had met each other at, a, at the Cannes Film Festival when Cries and Whispers was being shown. 
And he says that she gave him a letter or a note and said that she really wanted to do a film with him. I've always thought this is a really fascinating thing about Ingrid Bergman, who is herself a fascinating person. And I obviously can't go deep into her life on this episode, but obviously I would encourage you to watch more of her films. I love her in in, uh, Casablanca. Uh, Casablanca. I I still don't know how to say that word. I'm going to say Casablanca. (laughs) I just feel weird. I don't know how to pronounce it properly sometimes. Um, And I love her in Gaslight. I love her in Hitchcock's Notorious. I like a lot of her early work. Um, And I also love her work with Roberto Rossellini, which I might talk about a little bit later. Um, She did Stromboli. She did um, Journey to Italy. Oh, I love Journey to Italy. I'm going to have to do an episode about it. I actually want to do some episodes about Italian cinema down the road. Um, What's interesting is that she started, you know, with these Hollywood films. And in that studio system, I guess you could say, with Hitchcock and, and all of that, But then she wasn't afraid to sort of go outside of that and go to Europe and do these different films. Um, I can't think of an actress who really does that. I mean, usually if you're making films in America, in Hollywood, that's where you stay your entire career and that's the kind of films that you do. The only actress I can think of nowadays that sort of goes back and forth between Hollywood and sort of art house would be uh, Kristen Stewart. You know, she's done film, obviously she did Twilight, but then she's also done Clouds of Sils Maria and Personal Shopper. Um, she's done some French films. And so I think Ingrid Bergman was sort of similar in that way where she was doing films in Hollywood, but then she went to Italy and she fell in love with Roberto Rossellini and they had some children and it was a huge scandal in her life. It sort of ruined her career for a while, but she did eventually make a comeback But she was very vilified for doing that. And so she went and she made these very classic art house, you know, Italian cinema classics. And then she also worked with Ingmar Bergman. And I think she had a beautiful range about her. And I think she she gives a powerhouse performance in this film. And um, so he knew that he wanted Ingrid Bergman in this film. and, And that's what he got. But the filming itself, he, he says, was very draining. Um, and it came from the different sort of styles between him and Ingrid. And um, he says, quote, Starting on the first day when we all read the script together in the rehearsal studio, I discovered that she had rehearsed her entire part in front of the mirror, complete with intonations and self-conscious gestures. It was clear that she had a different approach to her profession than the rest of us. She was still living in the 1940s, unquote. So I guess he felt like she was sort of um, wooden or she had already had these preconceived ideas and she needed to know what moves to make and how her face should look and the facial expressions um, that she needed to have. And they just had sort of a contentious working relationship at times that sometimes he had to be more aggressive with her and um, their styles were just like kind of really different. And um, he goes on to say in images, quote, Ingrid also had some trouble remembering her lines. 
In the morning, she was often crabby and angry, which was understandable. She lived with constant anxiety over her own illness, and at the same time found our way of working unfamiliar and frightening. But she, made, but she never made any attempt to back out. Her conduct was always extraordinarily professional, even with her obvious frailties. Ingrid Bergman was a remarkable person, generous, grand, and highly talented. Unquote. So they had a difficult working relationship. I guess she came from a different style of acting, you know, and I guess he felt like she was sort of frozen in that way of doing things. And it was very different than the way that he did things. But in the end, I still think that he got a really great performance out of her and he got a great performance out of Liv Ullman as well. And um, at the time, Ingrid knew that she had breast cancer and she would eventually die from that breast cancer, unfortunately. And um, when he talks about his difficult relationship with her, it sort of reminded me of uh, my episode on wild strawberries where I talked about how sometimes Victor Jostrom, who was the main, who played the main character in the film, he could be a little bit difficult. Um, but it worked out, you know, in the end, I think actors are complicated people, you know, especially as they get older and, um, and when they're going through things, you know, Victor Jostrom was having issues at the time with wild strawberries and Ingrid Bergman knew that she had breast cancer. She did eventually die in 1982, which was just four years after Autumn Sonata came out. So she's a woman dealing with a lot at that time. And, and I think you have to be understanding of that. And that she's going into, into a situation that she might be uncomfortable with. But I respect her for doing it. I respect her for saying, you know what? I want to work with Ingmar Bergman. I want to go and do a film in Swedish you know, where for so long she had done films in English and she was a big Hollywood star. She didn't have to do that, but it says to me that this is a woman dedicated to her craft. And there's a really great documentary that I highly recommend. I didn't have time to watch it again for this episode, but I really love it. It's called Ingrid Bergman in her own words. And it consists of excerpts from Ingrid's diaries and, um, and home videos, and interviews with her children, and you get such a sense of Ingrid. And I came away with that documentary. I watched it several years ago. I think it came out in 2016 or 2015, um, around that time. And I came away with it with a lot of respect for her, that this was a woman who really loved acting and was dedicated to her craft a woman who did not only films but theater as well and who struggled because of it she was vilified for her affair with roberta rosalini she had she, I, I don't want to say her relationships with her children were difficult necessarily they wanted more of her that's the thing about ingrid and her children um and they talk about it openly in the documentary that they just wanted more of her, that she was often away, you know, filming films or, or being in theater. But she wanted to do that work. And that is what fulfilled her. And acting mattered to her. And, and she loved it deeply and was so passionate about it. But that meant 
that meant at that time leaving her children at times and you know when she would marry another man and she would sometimes leave the other children and it it was complicated none of them talked ill about her at all but they just felt like a distance they didn't get to see their mother every day they didn't have as much of her as they wanted and that was the thing that they were mourning and that they were talking about in the documentary but I think the documentary gives you such a complex nuanced portrait of Ingrid and what she struggled with that here's this woman so passionate about acting and then here she is also wanting to be with her family but she can't be everywhere she can't do it all she can't have all of that and I think her character, Charlotte, in Autumn Sonata, mirrors that to a certain extent. It's not exactly the same. Charlotte is a much more brutal person, I think. Um, but she is a woman who struggled with being a pianist, you know, being in love with music and wanting to play and tour, and then having children. And that she couldn't do both at the same time, and she had to make hard choices. And maybe she didn't always make the right choices. But women, you're going to lose either way. That's the point. Like, if you choose your children and you don't pursue your passion, you get judged for that. Why are you not pursuing your dreams? Why are you not making films? Why are you not doing this or that? But then if you go and you do those things, well, why are you not with your children? It's it's a catch-22, you know. But I definitely recommend Ingrid Bergman in her own words. It's this gorgeous film, too. Um, Her home videos are so dreamy. Like, I can't even describe them. There's just something about those old home movies. I mean, many of you have probably seen old home movies, especially the ones in color. I don't know what the film stock was or something, but there's just nothing like it today. There's such a dreaminess about those home movies that you see of her And I just have beautiful memories of watching that film. I really wish I could have watched it again this week, but I just wasn't able to. But definitely watch it. It's it's an amazing, amazing film. And it will definitely give you more insight into Ingrid Bergman. And so I'll just leave you with this. Bergman himself was not really happy with Autumn Sonata, which is interesting. I think it is a powerful film. I love it. I wouldn't be talking about it if I didn't think it was really great. (laughs) But he himself, I think, had misgivings about it. And I don't think he understood where it came from inside of him. And I think because he couldn't understand where it came from, that he didn't quite know how to execute it for himself. And of course, a director is always going to be more critical of themselves. I look at Autumn Sonata and I think, oh my God, this is such a powerful piece of work about a mother and a daughter. But he looked at it and I think he saw flaws. And he saw that he didn't get to what he wanted to get to. But he writes, quote, What I will never know is this. How did it happen that this film was Autumn Sonata? If you carry around a story inside long enough or keep dwelling on a certain subject, as happened with Persona or Cries and Whispers, it is possible to discern how a film evolved and why it ended up as it did. But how did Autumn Sonata suddenly burst forth, looking the way it does, like a dream. And perhaps that is its weakness. It should have remained a dream. Not a film of a dream, but a dream of a film. Two characters. Background and everything else ought to have been pushed to the side. Three acts in three kinds of lighting. One evening light, one night light, 
and one morning light. No cumbersome sets, two faces, and three kinds of lighting. Without a doubt, that is how I first imagined Autumn Sonata, unquote. So here we have a film in which its director is not fully pleased with it and doesn't quite think that it worked. But I, ha I take an opposite view. And I was very moved by this film and I found it very devastating. And what I want to revisit in my review is that devastation of why it hit me in such a way. And I also want to say that I think this film, if you're put off by, oh, well, I don't watch films about mothers and daughters, or you don't think that that's going to connect or resonate with you, maybe my review could change your mind a little bit. And there will be spoilers, so just be aware of that. I, I don't know, not much happens in the film. It's not like a plot-driven film or anything like that. But um, this is a film I think about more than just a mother and daughter. There are themes in this film that transcend just it's about a, a mom and a daughter. Or it's just about a parent and a child. That even if you maybe don't connect to stories like that, there's so much here. And that's what I want to talk about. Um, so that's what I'm going to do. So there will be a little bit of a musical break. And then we'll talk all about Autumn Sonata. Sonata for a second time I think I understood the film better I think I saw it in a different way I think I saw some of the characters in a really different way than the first time I watched it and I'm obviously going to talk about that in this review and I think yes this is about a mother and daughter it's a very specific story but I think what I came away with after the second viewing for the podcast, because I cannot talk about a film from memory alone. If there's a film that I saw years ago and then I tried to do an episode of the podcast about it without rewatching it, it just wouldn't be the same. So I rewatch these films and I want to re-experience them as I am now. And sometimes that is really enriching. And... For this film, it definitely was. I think I saw Charlotte in a different way. I think this film is much more complex when it comes to Charlotte than other people may think or realize, or maybe even more than I realized. This is not a film about a monstrous mother. To me, it's not. There is monstrous things about Charlotte. There are hurtful things about Charlotte. God knows. This woman is difficult. This woman is... She has caused a lot of pain. And this is Ingrid Bergman's character, if I didn't make that clear. She plays a mother. Liv Ullman plays her daughter, Ava. And then she has a second daughter named Helena, who is disabled. And I, I came away with it a bit more sympathetic to Charlotte at times, which may sound strange to some of you who have seen the film, but I'm going to make my case, I promise you. For me, what this film is really about is how sometimes we don't get loved by people the way we need to be loved. That we don't feel loved by the people who are supposed to love us. That, for me, is the heart of it. 
And it's about the damage that we can do to each other, sometimes without even realizing it. And how that often happens within a family. It can happen between a parent and a child. It can happen between siblings. It can happen in a lot of different relationships within our families. And I've talked throughout different episodes about the difficulties I've had in my family. I'm estranged from my family. I'm estranged from my father's side and my mother's side at this point because of things that happened after my father died that were very hurtful and they just became toxic and people that I didn't want in my life. What's interesting about Autumn Sonata is that it is about a daughter, Liv Ullman, Ava, reaching out to a family member, to her mother, a person in her life who has done great damage to her and great harm to her and her trying to bridge the gap and her trying to to change the estrangement, to reconnect with a person and forge a relationship with them. But I think she learns in the end that that isn't possible and yet she still doesn't give up on it. And Ava just fascinates me because I'm not capable of that. I'm just not capable of it. The way I am personally is if you're not giving me love and acceptance, if you're not enriching my life in some way or bringing something positive into it or treating me the way that I think that I should be treated, then I don't really want you in my life and I have no problem cutting ties with you. But Maybe that says a lot about me. You know, I'm just that kind of person. I'd rather be alone than to be unloved by somebody and to accept it and to say that it's okay that you don't love me or it's okay that you treat me badly. You know, I think if I, if you have the choice in the situation, I understand that some of us are attached to people for complicated reasons, but if, if I can cut ties with them, I probably will. And that's what I've done over the years with certain people. I've had to. I just have had to. To protect myself. But Ava is very different from that. In that she keeps wanting a relationship with her mother. One that is probably not possible. So for me this film is about how people can't love us the way we need to be loved. It's about the damage people can do to us. And it's also about the wounds of childhood. It's about how people treat us when we're children. The things that they do, the things that they say, especially if they're a parent or they are some kind of authority figure in your life. It could be a grandparent as well. And what that does to us and how even when we become older, we become adults like Ava and we think that we can overcome it or we think that we can face it and that we can resolve it in some way, we really can't. That the damage is done and the wounds are there. And we have to allow people to handle those wounds in the way that is right for them. It's not the same for everybody. Some people get estranged from a parent and maybe their parent was difficult or abandoned them or wasn't present in their life when they were very young and say later on that parent tries to establish a relationship that parent has changed and is showing that they've changed and they want to 
to have a relationship with their child again, sometimes that child can be open to that. And they can say, yeah, I want to know you and I, I want us to be um, together again. And then some people can't. Sometimes what happened when they were a child lingers and it stays with them. And even though even though that parent may have changed, say say you had a parent who had done drugs, you know, when you were 10 or 11 and they were not part of your life for many years. Well, say 10, 15 years later, they're clean, they're sober. They come to you and they say, I, I want us to have a relationship again. I want us to be parent and child. I think some some people can be open to that and say, well, this person's changed and let's have a second chance. And I think some people can't do that. It's just not, and you you have to respect that. And each person deals with these things in such complicated ways. But this is also a woman um, struggling in some ways to have a family and a career. I know it sounds cliche. You know, we have these discussions in popular culture. Can women have it all? Can they have a career? Can they have children? You know, um, it tends to be this sort of bourgeois, like middle class thing. You know, these uh, white women who want to have it all, who want to have their businesses and their corporate careers and then raise a family and how hard it is on them. I mean, this is the stuff that you hear on the Today Show and things like that. But I, th- I think it's, you know, it is an issue for a lot of women that you work and then you try to have a relationship with your children at the same time. And that can be difficult, whether it's for a middle class, upper class woman or a working class woman who wants to spend time with her children. This is something that is an issue for women that men are not interrogated in the same way that women are when it comes to having a, a job and having children. And I think that's just the truth. And that is part of this film as well that I'll talk more about. Um, so those are just a few themes and then I'm going to elaborate on some of them as my review goes. Um, but this is just a devastating film in every possible way. It's heavy. It's intense. I would liken it to when I rewatched John Cassavetti's film, A Woman Under the Influence. I said in my episode about that film that I will probably never watch that film again because I'd I'd seen it two times at that point, maybe three. And it's so raw. It's so intense. It's relentless in its intensity and in its devastation. And I think Autumn Sonata is very similar. A lot of Ingmar Bergman films are like this. They are intense. They are profound. They are... um, they don't let up. They don't give you a break. But since I watch films on my laptop, I can take a break when I want to. And I had to take a lot of breaks watching Autumn Sonata. And I'm just going to be honest, I've been having a tough week in my life. And I really was not in the mood to watch the film. I kept putting it off and putting it off because I just had a lot going on. And I didn't know if I could go into this because it's a heavy film and it's an intense film. But I'm still glad that I rewatched it because I wanted to do this episode. And um, but I don't know if I'll ever watch it again. This is my second time, and it's just so devastating. But I think it's also a really well written film. And I'll quote from it later on in this review. Like 
I think some of the writing in this film is just superb. And I mean, this is Bergman, you know, much older, much later in his career. And his writing is still just impeccable. Like, do we talk enough about him as a writer? I don't know if we do, because I think he is one of the greatest writers of film I've ever seen. Like the dialogue in the films, it feels much more like theater. And you can tell that he comes from a theater background. That's how where he started. He spent a lot of time in the theater. And you can see it in the dialogue. I mean, as I was watching this, I know the filming of it was really difficult. That at times Ingrid was struggling, you know, or things like that. But I wonder what it was like for these actresses, for Liv Ullman and Ingrid Bergman, to have this kind of material to say. You know what I mean? Like, it must have been very powerful because it's not every day as an actress that you get this kind of written material. I mean, the things that 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 Ingmar wrote are just so powerful to me and and profound. Um, I take a lot of screenshots when I watch a subtitled films, when I watch films in a different language. I love subtitles. I don't like films that are dubbed. I understand that some people may find it necessary to watch a film that's dubbed maybe if you have vision issues and you're not able to read the subtitles but I will not watch a dubbed film an English dubbed film I refuse to do it I have to watch with with subtitles and I love being able to pause the film and take a screenshot and save those words and savor those words Um, this is such a beautifully written film despite how devastating it is so, Autumn Sonata is about Ava, played by Liv Ullman. Her husband's a parson. They live at a, at a parsonage. She's a writer and a journalist, I think, and she's written a few books. They live this very quiet life. And Ava has lost her son. He died a few years ago um, when he was just four years old. His name was Eric. And she still feels a very deep and profound connection to him. She also has her sister Helena living with her. And her sister is disabled. And um, at times they call her Helena. Sometimes they call her Lena, I guess. I'll probably just say Helena throughout the review just to be consistent about it. And so Ava, played by Liv Ullman, writes to her mother Charlotte, played by Ingrid Bergman, She writes a letter to her. They've been estranged and they haven't seen each other for seven years. And she invites Charlotte to come to her house. Recently, Charlotte has lost her partner. His name was Leonardo. It's not clear if she was married to Leonardo or if they were just, you know, living together. And so Ava wants to invite her to their home. And Ava has a really complicated relationship with Charlotte who is a pianist. She is a world-famous, world-class piano player. And throughout her life, she has, I guess, done recordings, but she's also toured and done performances around the world. And she just, to me, she comes off like this very highly regarded musician who is just brilliant at the piano and who feels a very deep connection with music and that that is her big passion in life and that she 
spent a lot of time away from her children when they were younger. She was always on the road touring, doing albums, you know, things like that, playing Mozart, playing Chopin. And and um, it took her away from her family. It took her away from Ava and Helena. And Ava still has a lot of um, pain about it, pain that until her mother comes and until they have this confrontation one night that she is not fully admitted to herself how much pain she feels about her mother and how much animosity and resentment she feels about Charlotte and that's what bubbles to the surface this is really about a confrontation in a lot of ways, you know, between this mother and daughter. It's about things percolating and erupting to the surface and spilling out words and and wounds and um, memories coming out that have things that have never been said, the things that have stayed unspeakable between two people that finally come out and are thrown out into the light to be seen. You know, that this is what I feel about you. And it's incredibly powerful. And much of the film, obviously it takes place in autumn. <laughs> the colors are gorgeous. It is these beautiful reds and greens and earth tones in this film. Um, it's a gorgeous film, I think, personally. Um, and it takes place within Ava's home for the most part. It's a very claustrophobic, almost, environment. It's And there's extreme close-ups throughout the film. Close-ups on Charlotte, close-ups on Ava, which, you know, on these actresses' faces, there's crying, there's anger, there's all of it. There's rage. There's so much damage um, that has been done to these women. And... um it's just heartbreaking. It really does. So Charlotte does come. She comes to see Ava. They embrace. They're so happy. Um, in the beginning, they really are pretending with each other. You know, they're pretending, oh, I'm so happy to see you. Oh, you know, let's hug. And, and um, but there's something under the surface. And like I said, that eventually erupts. And I'll talk more about that scene in a moment. But, um, so Charlotte arrives and things just start out so tender. You know, they're crying, they're hugging. They seem really glad to see each other. It's been seven years since they saw each other. And they just seem very loving. Charlotte comes off very loving. But things take a change when Charlotte finds out that Helena is there. She did not know that. She thought she was just going to stay with Ava and Ava's husband. The last time she had seen Helena, she had been put in a home, in some kind of facility that was able to take care of Helena. She is basically bedridden. She's not really able to speak. She struggles to speak. She's very, um, you know, she just struggles. She struggles a lot. Um, but you can tell that Helena, like Ava, you know, really loves Charlotte, that she longs for her mother. Both both Ava and Helena long for their mother. They long for their mother deeply. Um, that is a big part of this film. 
but Charlotte really feels ambushed. She is very uncomfortable with Helena and doesn't know how to be around her. And you can see it in Ingrid's face, the way that she performs this character in the film. She looks tortured when she is in the presence of Helena. Um, You can tell that she is uncomfortable um, and she does not want to be around her. She does not want to be around her. Um, And it's palpable. You can feel that. Even though Helena is so happy to see Charlotte. Of course Helena is happy to see her mother. Um, But Charlotte decides there's no way she's staying in this house for very long. She had come there under the pretense that she she was just going to be with Ava. And she was probably going to stay a while. But she decides that there's no way she's staying. She's only going to stay a few days. Um, She thinks that they're trying to make her feel guilty. uh, Because she's been absent. And she feels bad that she can't comfort Helena. Um, She's just very uncomfortable with Helena's condition. And with her disability. And um, it's just not something that she wants to be around and that she wants to deal with. And I think she feels very ambushed and sort of blindsided by it that she wasn't told the full truth. And, you know, but she decides that she's only going to stay a few days. And I couldn't figure out whether she gets this phone call later that day or the next day. And I couldn't tell if, if she had orchestrated it. I guess she kind of had, she has someone call And she's on the phone making this really big performance, this really big show of saying that she, that her manager, her agent has called her and that there's this gig, there's this performance that she can't pass up and that she's going to have to leave soon in a few days to go do that. Um, It seemed very orchestrated or planned to me that she had someone call so that she could get out of, of being there, that she could get out of it somehow. So they have dinner together and Charlotte goes to the piano and she's just beaming. You can tell that she loves it deeply. And that's something that I noticed watching it for the second time was Charlotte's deep, deep love for music. And we never really question men who have to be away from their families to to pursue their passions. I really do feel that... Though Charlotte is a really flawed character, and yes, she has done immense damage to these women, to Helena, to Ava. She's abandoned them. She says some brutal things at times that I'll talk about later. Um, I'm not apologizing for Charlotte. I'm not justifying the things that Charlotte has done. Um... It's very painful when a mother abandons her children to a certain extent or is not there for her children the way she could be. Um, And Charlotte has made terrible decisions and terrible choices. But at the same time, what's great about this film is that I don't think it ever demonizes Charlotte. I mean, maybe it does, but I, I saw it as more complicated and nuanced than that. I saw Charlotte as this woman who, yes, has made terrible decisions. She's done a lot of damage, absolutely. I would never deny that. But she's also a woman, and this is the 1970s, okay? 
And even earlier than that, when she's in her prime, you know, when she's in her younger days playing the piano, it's probably the 50s. It probably would have been the 50s around that time. This is a woman pursuing her passion at a time when that was looked down upon, when women didn't do that. Or you think about the way Ingrid Bergman herself was vilified when she got with Roberto Rossellini. I mean, she was just, you know, torn apart in the media. It took her years to get her credibility back and to establish her career again. She was so vilified for that. And she herself, Ingrid Bergman, struggled with having a relationship with her children and having a relationship to this art form that she loved of acting, whether it was in the theater or it was in films. And that thing that she loved, that thing that she was passionate about, often took her away from her family. And that comes through very clearly in Ingrid Bergman in her own words, from what I remember of watching the documentary. None of her children speak ill of her. They don't hate their mother. They don't hate Ingrid Bergman. But they did feel a distance from her. They did feel like they wanted more of her, that they didn't get to see her as much as they would have liked to, because she was always traveling, she was always, you know, doing her work, but she was passionate about it, and it's it gave her a sense of purpose. And I got something similar from Charlotte in this film, that she loves the piano deeply. And so Ava starts to play the piano for Charlotte. She plays a Chopin song, and Charlotte seems really moved by it. There are tears in her eyes, and... I I just thought it was really kind of beautiful the way she sat there and was listening to Ava and and she seemed to really enjoy it. But Ava asks her, I think she asks her how it was and I mean, I'm pretty sure Charlotte's nice about it, but Ava insists that Charlotte share her own interpretation of the material and how it's very different from Ava's. But this is something that when I watched the scene this time, it's sort of Ava insisting, you know, Ava saying, oh, well, you should play your interpretation. Well, yeah, Charlotte's going to have a different view of the music. It's Ava that's sort of forcing her into playing it. It wasn't Charlotte that was like, well, well, you just scoot on over and I'm going to play my version of Chopin. That's not the way it went. It was sort of like Ava egging her on and saying, well, you play your version of it. And so Charlotte does play it, and Ava's watching her very intently the entire time. And there seems to be sort of an envy there. There seems to be an awe at the same time, the way that Charlotte's able to connect with music. And I also thought that maybe Charlotte was trying to share some of that deep feeling with Ava. You know, when she plays the Chopin, you can tell that Charlotte is just enraptured by it. And she loves sharing her knowledge of Chopin. She loves talking about music and she loves sharing that I'm not sure that she was trying to intentionally hurt her daughter by playing her own interpretation of the song but she does revel in the opportunity to play it as she wants to and the way she sees it she has been studying music for 40 years she says that it still contains many secrets and um This is a woman who's very passionate about music. So, but that scene is a a crack. You know, 
over the course of the film, before we get to that confrontation that night, there are little cracks in this facade that at first when she shows up, she's happy and, and nice and Charlotte's very loving. And then there's these cracks when she sees Helena, that's a crack. When Ava's playing the piano and things kind of start to get tense, that's another crack. Um, Charlotte sits with Ava in the nursery, the room where Ava's son, Eric, used to live. And um, he died just before he turned four. He actually drowned. And she says that she still feels the presence of Eric and that she still feels connected to him. And Charlotte is sitting with her and Charlotte doesn't really understand it. She she doesn't really say anything. She just leaves. She wants to go for a walk. That's sort of another crack. You know, it's about these two women, this mother and daughter, who are not really able to communicate with each other. And um, And I started realizing, obviously, that if Charlotte has not seen Ava for seven years, and Eric died when he was four years old. I don't know if we're told how long it's been since Eric's death. It may have been a year or more or less. I don't know. That really, Charlotte never even met Eric. You know, and that's really heartbreaking. You know, you have a child and then your mother never, never comes to see him. And she makes the excuse that she was recording Mozart sonatas and she could never get any time off. But that's really heartbreaking that you have a child and your child dies and your mother isn't there for you. So I'm not, I'm not justifying Charlotte at all. But when we're watching a film, I think we have to look at the characters in a somewhat nuanced way as much as we can. Even though when we're in our own lives we really can't look at people in that same nuanced way, right? Like if we've been hurt by someone or they've abandoned us or they've treated us terribly, it's really hard to see their side of it. It's really hard to have any kind of sympathy for them. But in a film, I think I think a film sometimes can engage your empathy in a different way that you're able to see a situation from the outside. You're able to see it from multiple perspectives. That is, I think... One of the powerful things about art is that you can see these different characters and and sometimes in a story, instead of seeing the narrative from one character's perspective, you can see it from multiple characters' perspective. And you can see that people have different experiences of the same exact thing. And that happens in our own lives too. That something I experienced a certain way is not the way another person experienced it who was present there for it. And that will come out in this film as we go along. That especially in Ava's childhood, Charlotte did not realize the things that she was doing to Ava. She did not realize for some reason the damage that she was inflicting. That she thinks they were happy together. And Ava is confronting her and saying... We lived this together, but I have a completely different experience and perspective than you do. So we get the confrontation. Um, one night, it might be later that night after the piano playing, Charlotte has this nightmare of someone on top of her. And she wakes up. And she goes out of her room. And um, she's eventually joined by Ava. So they're up. And it's the nighttime. 
And this is when the confrontation starts to happen, that they start to talk. And um, Charlotte asks Ava if Ava likes her. And Ava can't really answer it. She says that she's her mother. You know, she's implying that I like you because you're my mother. (laughs) Not necessarily because I like you, like you, you or love you. You can tell that Ava is ambivalent about Charlotte, you know. And um, it's just very difficult for her to figure out her, her feelings. And she says at one time that she doesn't actually know if she hates Charlotte. Because Charlotte asks her, point blank, you know, do you hate me? Or something like that, or uses those kinds of words and... She doesn't know. And she also says that she doesn't know what exactly she wants out of out of Charlotte being here. That she's not sure why she invited her to the house. She says that she thought that she could be an adult and that she could handle the past. But you can tell that it still devastates her. And that's a big theme in this film is what do you do with this pain from the past? What do you do about the things that happened to you when you were young, when you were a child? You can't just erase them. And I was thinking about this recently, how, you know, some of the most intense experiences of my life happened when I was a child and how they they shaped me and formed me and how we don't really always remember the happy experiences We always more intensely remember the painful experiences. We remember that person that called us a name. We remember the way we were shunned or excluded. We remember experiences of profound um, hurt, you know, and those tend to shape us more profoundly than any other experiences. And that's like sad to me. Like, it's just sad to me that we're more shaped by the pain than the happiness, you know? But we are, you know? And this confrontation is really an opportunity for Ava to speak her truth to Charlotte. To say, this is what I felt, and this is what I went through, and this is what you did to me. And there's something very powerful about that. And there is an emotional release and catharsis about this film that I think is really powerful, but also really devastating. Because Charlotte has to, in this confrontation, she has to face what she's done. She has to face the the damage that she's inflicted on Ava and Helena. And Ava just puts it all out there, you know. She talks about how she felt like she was just a doll that her mother played with sometimes. That she picked her up and and then put her back down. And that the rest of the time she was away playing the piano, rehearsing, performing. And there's these really heartbreaking flashbacks that Ingmar Bergman does. Where we see them younger. We actually see Ava's... Ava as a child and we see her standing outside the room listening to her mother playing and um we see Ava at one point looking at herself in the mirror and she talks about how she was so devastated when Charlotte would leave her and go on tour um but she also says that 
she didn't like when she was there. So Ava, again, Ava herself is confused. She doesn't know what she feels because she missed Charlotte when she was gone. But when Charlotte was there, she was um, overbearing. At one time, Charlotte gets bad back pain and it keeps her from playing. Performances had to be canceled. And um, she talks about how she felt guilty when she was away from her family. But she also talks about this experience um, of a conductor telling her that she should stop playing and that she should go back home to her family because really her best days are behind her. So this is when Charlotte is a bit older. And he, this is the implication that he sends her, that her best days are, are behind her. Because he talks about this great performance that she did when she was 20, how the audience loved it. And he's really implying that now that she's older, she's not capable of that. She's past her prime. And this is really devastating for Charlotte to hear. And so after that conductor says that to her, she does go back home for a little while. And so her and Ava are talking a bit about that time when Charlotte went home for a little while. And this was when Ava was young. She's probably seven or eight, I would say. And, um, but Ava talks about all these years she hadn't had Charlotte because Charlotte had been out performing. And then all of a sudden, when Charlotte decided to come back home and spend time with the family, now she was there all the time. And Charlotte's presence was actually suffocating and overbearing. She says that her, she says that Charlotte cut her hair made her get braces, wouldn't let her wear pants. Um, Ava never felt good enough for her mother. And here's her mother who's very glamorous and beautiful. And she would compare herself to Charlotte. And she never felt like she measured up. She never felt loved and accepted by Ava. She never felt loved and accepted by Charlotte, sorry, by her mother. And it made her hate herself. It made her hate herself. And Liv Ullman in this scene when she's saying all this is just um, just ferocious. It's just she's almost screaming at times. She's very emotional and she's angry and she's loud and she's yelling. And it's just flooding out of her these emotions that she has probably pented up for years and years and years and all of it is just erupting out of her and I think that's why I also connect to this film I don't connect to the story necessarily you know of a mother-daughter dysfunction because I don't have that but I re I do relate to family dysfunction I relate to sort of not being loved by your family your extended family I guess you could say um, but I relate to the emotion of it. I relate to the the things that are done to us in our childhood are very wounding and that they scar us and that we carry that pain with us and we don't know what to do with it. And in this scene, this is just such a cathartic emotional scene where Ava gets to speak. She gets to say, this is what I felt. 
this is what you did to me. And Charlotte is flabbergasted. She thought that they were happy. She thought that when she came back home, it was like over a summer, I think, or it was just over this period of time. When Charlotte looks back on that time, she thought they were happy. She thought everything was okay. So what struck me watching this film again was like, oh my God, this film is really about two people with completely different views of the experiences that they shared together. It's about this mother who thought her children were happy, you know, when the whole time she was completely destroying them. And she didn't really know. She's oblivious to the damage that she has done, like most people are. I mean, all of us have hurt other people at one time or another. And we may not have realized that we did. I think sometimes we don't realize how powerful our words can be. That sometimes when you say certain things, it can stay with a person the rest of their life. And you may not realize it. You may not know that. Um, so these two women lived the same experiences, but they have vastly different ex views of them, different perspectives of them. Whereas Charlotte thinks they were happy and Ava is saying, no, this is the other side of it. This is what I kept inside. This is what I never told you. This is what I could never say, but now I can say it. You know, she's finally getting to express those things but at the same time I think that this scene also shows what I was trying to say about Charlotte earlier that there is a more nuanced representation here than first meets the eye that I do not think Charlotte comes off as a monster and I don't think that Ingrid Bergman played her as a monster I mean that's not how I interpret it personally and at times I did have sympathy for her. I had sympathy for Ava and I had sympathy for Charlotte because I think as we get older, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately, I think as we get older, probably into our 20s, I think we look at our parents in a different way. Or I think that we should look at them in a different way. And sometimes people have talked about how when they have children themselves, it gives them a different perspective on their parents and what their parents went through. At the end of the day, what we don't realize when we're really young, you know, when we're 10 or when we're in our teens, is that our parents are human beings too. That they're not heroes. They're not superhuman. They're not, they're just not. That they are like us. They are formed by certain experiences. They have pain. They have grief. They have flaws. They make mistakes. I'm not apologizing for abusive parents. I'm not. I'm not doing that. But I'm saying that sometimes when you look back on certain things or you look at your parents and sometimes maybe they let you down or you didn't feel you got what you needed all the time. Sometimes as you get older, you can see them in a different light. You can see that they were doing the best that they could do that they had certain resources or they didn't have a lot of resources, that they themselves were struggling with pain, that they had a history and a life before you were born 
And that history didn't go away when you were born. That they carried it with them. And that they made mistakes because of it. You know? But each person has to decide for themselves their relationship to their parents. I would never try to tell you, oh, forgive an abusive parent. Or forgive a parent that abandoned you. Or forgive a parent that did the things that Charlotte did. But I do think that with time, we can get a different perspective of our parents. And that I think that's an important thing. Is to maybe extend a certain amount of humanity and compassion to them. I do think that that's worthwhile. I really do. But each person has to decide for themselves, you know, that relationship and how they feel about it. I do think at times that Ava sends these mixed messages to Charlotte. And I just and I just said it recently. I said in that particular scene, Ava talks about how she hated when Charlotte left her and then she hated when Charlotte was there too. So what should Charlotte do? <laughs> so if she's away doing her performances, she's hurting Ava. But if she's there, she's also hurting Ava. And I think Charlotte herself is confused about it. You know, it, like, what do you do? What do you do when either way you lose? Either way you, you're, you're hurting your children. Um, she, and, and Charlotte says at one time, she says, quote, you reproach me for leaving and you reproach me for staying home, unquote. You can't really have it both ways, you know, it, she missed Charlotte when she was gone, but then she hated when Charlotte was there. So to some extent, mothers especially, they cannot win. <laughs> you know, mothers are often blamed for a lot of things. Mothers have a lot of pressure on themselves, you know, and I think it has gotten worse, actually. There is this whole trend of wellness and this obsession with wellness on the internet, you know, it's everywhere and you can see it in the way mothers, you know, there's this um this obsession with a natural birth, with eating organic, with breastfeeding your child, with spending time with your child and having maternity leave and things like that. All of these things are available to a certain class of people in this country. Because there is not maternity leave for working class women. And if you're having to go back to your job working at Walmart or working at a factory or working wherever you work, you may not be able to do a breast pump to do breast milk. You may not have the time or the money to buy organic and create organic baby food for your baby. You know, there's just a lot of pressure on women to be these perfect mothers, you know, and to do everything right. And... It's just a lot of pressure on, on women in general in our culture, obviously. And you see the pressure that Charlotte had to deal with as well. I'm not forgiving or, you know, not trying to minimize the damage that she did. But she also just couldn't win no matter what she did. Um, and like I said earlier with that piano scene... Charlotte wasn't sitting there saying, well, let me tell you what I think about this Chopin. It was Ava insisting on her sharing it. And so that's what she did, but she upset Ava by doing that. But I don't know if she necessarily thought she was going to upset Ava. You get what I'm saying? So there's just so much in this scene. We learn that 
Ava got pregnant when she was 18 and Charlotte had her get an abortion. She thought that that was what was best for her. You know, she didn't want her daughter going through life with a child that she couldn't support or that would make her life a struggle. But she gets blamed for that. And um, Ava just, Ava realizes that she does hate her mother. She does hate Charlotte. And maybe Ava herself didn't even realize this until this confrontation, until this conversation that night. And she says to Charlotte, quote, you're shut up inside yourself and always put yourself first, unquote. Ava loved Charlotte deeply, but Charlotte wasn't able to return that love. She could only see Ava's flaws. She could only see what Ava wasn't. She could only see the ways in which Ava did not measure up. And that's what's so devastating about the film is that Ava loved her. Ava had so much to give to her and Charlotte couldn't accept it. And later on, Charlotte talks about her own childhood. And again, this is what I'm saying when we think about our parents in a more complicated way that what what was Charlotte taught? Was she given a model of what a mother should be? Was she given parents who were really loving and supportive? No, she wasn't. She wasn't given that at all. She says her parents didn't touch her. They did not love her. She did not feel any warmth or tenderness. And really the only way she was able to express her emotions was through music. And there's just this very profound scene where she's saying all this. And um, and she says something um, very powerful. She says, sometimes when I lie awake at night, I wonder whether I've lived at all. Is it the same for everybody? Or do some people have a greater talent for living than others? Or do some people never live? They just exist. And so I do think that through this confrontation with Ava, Charlotte realizes that she's not been the best mother. And I think that her decisions to a certain extent I think they do haunt her. She was not able to give love to Ava and Helena. She just wasn't able to do it. And she was not able to love her daughters in the way that they needed to be loved. And as I said earlier, that for me is a big theme of this film. If not the whole, you know, heart of the film is that we crave love from certain people in our lives. It's usually our parents, right? Or it can be other family members. And when we don't get that love, it is profoundly damaging. And that's all Ava ever wanted, was she wanted unconditional love from her mother. She didn't want to be told, you need to cut your hair, and you need to get braces, and you need to wear certain clothes. She just wanted to be loved. But at the same time, we live in a world, we live in a culture where women are socialized to obsess over their appearance and the way that they look. And so mothers are often given the role of having to do that to their daughters. Because if they don't discipline their daughters in the way that the world wants them to. 
you know, if they don't make their daughters beautiful or if they don't make sure their daughters are thin and that they look right, then they know that their daughters may have a difficult time in the world, you know. They feel that pressure, you know, to make sure that their daughters look a certain way and that they look a certain way as mothers, right, as women, and so, but that can have a really damaging impact on the relationships between mothers and daughters. And you see it in something like the recent show, This Is Us, which is about, which also has a really complicated mother-daughter relationship in Mandy Moore, who plays Rebecca, and um, Chrissy Metz, who's on the, on the show, who plays a fat woman, you know, and a woman struggling with her weight and who had a mother who did, um, you know, try to restrict her food and did try to, to do that and who made her feel a little bit less than. I'm a little bit behind on the show right now. I'm a few episodes behind on the latest season. But um, they had a difficult relationship with each other <clears throat> when, when Kate, that's the character that Chrissy Metz plays, when Kate was a child, she she compared herself to her mother, who was thinner and who was seen as beautiful, and she felt like Rebecca judged her and judged her weight and and treated her differently. And it's not exactly the same with Autumn Sonata, obviously, um, but it is about how um, these societal pressures on women can affect women's relationships. That we can put pressure on each other as women to look a certain way, to um, measure up to a certain standard, instead of just accepting one another for who we are. And I would like to see a world one day where a woman is not defined by what she looks like. And I think it's very interesting the way that Liv Ullman does look in the film as Ava. She looks very plain, I guess you could say. She wears glasses at times. She has her hair in braids. She wears very plain clothing. She looks like she doesn't have much makeup on. And I think I think that says something that she has gotten to a point where she's going to dress the way that she wants. She's going to do her hair the way that she wants. And that's the way she wants to be. And it's in stark contrast to Charlotte, who looks very glamorous and wears makeup and has really... Um, quaffed hair and you know wears jewelry and and she just looks a bit more glamorous whereas Ava looks a bit more simple and plain and um it just it hurt her it hurt her that Charlotte could never accept her for who she was and give her that unconditional love that she never felt good enough she never felt like she played the piano well enough for Charlotte and things like that and um, Ava one ma- at one time says, quote, you managed to injure me for life just as you are injured, unquote. I mean, that's deep. I mean, that goes back to the damage that we can do to people. The damage that we've done that can come from us, from we ourselves being uh, damaged and being hurt, you know. And Ava also says, and this is the the part that has always stayed with me for years. She says, quote, a mother and daughter, what a terrible combination of feelings and confusion and destruction, unquote.
that mothers and daughters can have these really complicated relationships and and we don't know how to talk about that sometimes because women are so idealized as mothers you know we put them on this pedestal and they're supposed to be perfect and nurturing and loving and sometimes people don't get that you know sometimes they get a very different kind of mother we don't always know how to talk about it and it can turn into spectacle you know you think of something like mommy dearest that's about joan crawford and i can't speak to the accuracy of that film mommy dearest or or the memoir itself i don't know a whole bunch about joan crawford but we can get these very sort of spectacle like um representations of it and um i mean i, I watch mommy dearest i love that film I love it in all of its camp and trashiness, you know, and over the topness. Um, I, I love that film personally. <laughs> no more wire hangers ever. <laughs> Me and my mom, like, I grew up on that film and we used to quote it all the time. I love Mommy Dearest. But it's a spectacle, you know, it's this very exaggerated one-dimensional thing you know it's not exactly going for nuance where i whereas i think something like autumn sonata has much more complexity to it much more than i realized on the first viewing and i thought this was a very interesting thing that ava also says she says quote the mother the mother's injuries are handed down to the daughter the mother's failures are paid for by the daughter the mother's unhappiness will be the daughter's unhappiness. It's as if the umbilical cord had never been cut. Is that true? Is the daughter's misfortune the mother's triumph? Is my grief your secret pleasure? Unquote. What do you say? It's all right there. It's all right there. The pain that Charlotte has done to to Ava and to Helena as well you know and Ava blames Charlotte for Helena's condition she says that at just a year old Helena was left by Charlotte and over the years she was periodically abandoned by Charlotte so I mean I don't know all the causes of Helena's condition and stuff like that but you can tell that Ava definitely blames her she definitely blames Charlotte and she is not able to forgive her because she begs her. Charlotte begs Ava for forgiveness. But Ava's not able to give that to her. She's not able to say that I forgive you. And I think maybe she wrote that letter. Maybe she thought she could. Maybe that's why she wrote it. Maybe that's why she invited Charlotte to the house. She thought, you know what? I'm an adult. I'm married. I've had a kid myself, you know, and maybe losing Eric, her her child, when he was around four years old, maybe that woke her up to a certain extent where she thought, you know what? Now I know what it's like to have a child. I know what it's like to be a mother. And what's interesting, too, is that Ava can no longer be a mother her child is taken from her her child drowns ava would give anything to have her child to love her child to hold him to be with him to have a relationship with him 
But he's gone, and here is Charlotte who still has both her children. She has Ava and she has Helena, and she chooses to not have a relationship with them. She chooses to go seven years without seeing her daughter. Because she is self-obsessed. She is consumed by her own passions, her own desires, her career, and what she wants. You know? Yeah, I don't apologize for Charlotte. I know the damage that this has done. I know there are lots of parents who have been like this and who have left their children. And it's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking that Ava cannot have her son and cannot have her child and would give anything to have him and be with him. And then here's two children. Here's Charlotte's children right in front of her that she could choose to have a relationship with. And she will not. And she refuses. And she finds any excuse to leave. To flee from them. Because they remind her of her failures. They remind her of her selfishness. They remind her of the mistakes and the things that she has done. And the damage that she has done. That is what Helena reminds her of. That's why she can't look at her. It's why she can't be around her. And Helena is heartbreaking in this film. Throughout the confrontation that night, Helena is actually getting out of her bed and crawling and dragging herself and screaming. I mean, it's very emotional. And um, Charlotte cannot stay. You know, she, she has to flee. She cannot be reminded of what she has done. And that's what she does. She we see her the next day or a few days later or whenever and she's on a train. Um, she's left. She's gone. She's going to keep going on with her life. And um, and she's going to keep leaving her children and not having any relationship with him. She's talking to a man and she's talking about Helena and saying that she Helena was there at the house. She was sicker than ever. And then she says, and I think this says a lot about Charlotte, and this is the darkness of Charlotte. This is the ugliness of this woman. And she says, why can't she die? She says this about Helena. And when she said that, I felt like the breath get knocked out of me. Almost. Why can't she die? She's tired of Helena. She's tired of it. I mean, it's just... Ugh. At times you feel sympathy for Charlotte. You you understand that she had a childhood that wasn't easy. That she didn't really get a model of what love and tenderness was. But you also have to hold people responsible for their decisions. To, you do. You know that when they are an adult, they make certain choices. She could have decided to be a better mother than what she had. She could have tried. You know, you see that Ava has tried to to be a better mother than what she had. I'm sure she was a doting mother when she did have Eric. So you, on the one hand, you can feel sympathy for Charlotte, but you can also condemn some of her behavior. And saying, why can't she die about her own daughter is intense and harsh and very brutal. And, um... It'll, it just takes your breath away when you're watching the film and you you hear her say that. And when Helena is told that Charlotte has left, 
she's just completely devastated all over again. I mean, it's just, it's sad. It's, I told you, this film's intense. Like, the damage that is done to us as children or when we're very young and it's, it doesn't go away. That maybe we think we're past it or we think we've overcome it and then something happens and we realize that we're really not and that we're not as far past it as we thought we were. And, um, but what's interesting is that at the end, Ava writes another letter to Charlotte asking for her forgiveness, saying that she shouldn't have made demands on Charlotte and that she'll keep trying to have a relationship with her. That knocked me out. I was like, oh my God, because if anybody has the right to not want a relationship with their mother, it's Ava. But Ava, Ava's stronger than me. She's, she's somehow able to look past that stuff. And to keep trying with Charlotte. I mean, it's kind of stunning that she's able to do that. But I wonder if for Ava, it's really important to be better than Charlotte. You know, to, to reach out, to keep trying to have a relationship with her. That maybe she feels like... Um, She's taking the high road, as they say, that she's trying to be the better person in that relationship. And maybe because of her religious uh, feeling, she, I got the sense that Charlotte was not religious. And I got the sense that Ava was very religious. She's married to a, a parson, you know, she's married to a preacher. I, I guess that's what he would be. And, um, she plays the organ at the church. She, when she was talking about Eric, she talked about how she still felt like he was alive, that she felt a connection to him, obviously a spiritual religious connection. So I think there is something in Ava because of her religious um, feeling and her religious beliefs. I get the sense that that is what gives her a sense of grace. I guess you could call it that that is grace on her part to say that even though you've hurt me even though you've done this damage I'm going to try to be the better person here and I'm going to try to keep having a relationship with you it I didn't really expect that I think I had kind of forgotten that ending <laughs> when I watched it the, the first time I think I had forgotten about that so um, this is just, it's a devastating film. It's just devastating. That's the word that I used to describe it. And watching it a second time, it had not lost any of that emotional power at all. Or that intensity. Like I said, at times I had to take breaks. It was so intense. But, um, yeah, I think this film will always stay with me. And it's a very dreamy film, too, because of the colors and the light in it. But it is just a devastating film. It's devastating to the system. Especially if you maybe have a complicated relationship with a parent. Um, so, or, or, or with family, or with just people in your life. The thing that stayed with me was the damage that is done when we are not loved unconditionally. When we don't receive the love that we need. 
and what that does to us and the way that it absolutely destroys us, especially when we're children. And I know everybody talks about how children are resilient. And I guess children are resilient to a certain extent. But I think that when we're no longer children, that that's when we start to actually process and to feel it. I really do. I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but it's like you go through things when you're a child and they hurt and they make an impression. And I think somehow you just get through it, you know, but I think as you get older and you think back on it, you realize really what it did to you and the way that it shaped you. And I think it's harder to deal with. And I think that's why you sometimes see addiction. You see people struggling and trying to self-medicate or comfort themselves in some way. Or to dull the pain or escape the pain through different methods. However they may do that. Because what do you do with it? The past is done. The damage is done. What do you do with it? I don't know. I have my own damage. I have my own hurt. I have my own grief. I have my own memories, terrible memories of of things that I felt and ways that I was treated when I was young. And those scars and those wounds are still there. And I can't deny them. I can't pretend like they're not there. And I've certainly tried to self-medicate in different ways. And I would never deny that, you know. And um, I don't know how to deal with with that pain. Um, But I do find it cathartic and, and therapeutic at times to talk about these emotions, these experiences through the medium of film. You know, I think film creates this space for us to explore certain things and to talk about certain things. And so I'm glad that I have the the platform of this podcast to talk to you about some of these really complicated, thorny, um, intricate issues um, that that are part of the human condition. And so this does conclude my exploration of Ingmar Bergman um, for now. It doesn't mean I won't do other episodes in the future about his films. But for 2018, for the centenary of his birth, um, I wanted to explore some of his work and and talk about some of the films that meant the most to me and that brought up certain things for me that I really wanted to talk about. And so I hope that you've enjoyed the series. And I mean, some of you will listen to this episode, obviously, in the future and it won't be part of the series. You'll just be randomly listening to it. But um, I hope that this episode was valuable to you in some way. And um, it's been really great to revisit Bergman's work. And I think he was an exceptional director. I know some people think he's overrated and some people don't care about him or whatever, but I don't listen to those people. I think that a lot of his greatest films or um, all of his films really, are about the human condition. And they're about some really deep things, whether it's mental illness or grief or regrets or family dysfunction um, or not being loved the way that we need to be loved. There's just so much there in his work to explore. And you'll never be done 
you know, there's still so many films of his to see and so much to learn about him. And I hope that this episode or any of the other Bergman episodes that you've listened to, I hope that they've been helpful in some way. Or maybe they've piqued your interest in his work. Or maybe they've deepened your understanding of his work. So I definitely thank you for listening to this episode. Bye for now. Until next time, keep watching great films.